There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. Welcome to this week's No Restraint Podcast. I must admit that during these holiday seasons, beginning with Thanksgiving and then stretching straight through to the new year, I'm always more thoughtful. I'm thoughtful about the things that I'm grateful for. I try to give thanks all the time to God for the blessings that he has seen fit to give to me and to my family. And I'm always appreciative of other people who are also in grateful moods. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot is religion, faith, and just this sort of diverse viewpoints there are about where moral clarity actually comes from. I saw a discussion between Mark Levin and Bibi Netanyahu, where the prime minister repeatedly talked about moral clarity. And for myself... Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I think the only path to moral clarity is to have a faith in a power greater than yourself, which I choose to call God. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian by choice. And that choice was not that difficult for me to make. I came from a background where I had a Jewish father and a Catholic mother. And while there was a lot of confusion growing up, the one thing I was very sure of was that there was moral clarity and that it derived from a set of values that I attributed to Judeo-Christian viewpoints or worldviews, because of course I had both of them in my family. And it seemed to me that the golden rule and the Ten Commandments made perfect sense if you wanted to live peacefully in a very, very chaotic environment usually filled with people who had different belief systems, and some had very different moral boundaries. But I discovered that whenever people were tied to their faith in one way or another, in other words, if they studied their faith, if they went to church or temple or mosque on a regular basis, there was a discernible moral clarity that other people just didn't have. So I was really interested and shared with my audience on my regular radio show about Ayan Hirsi Ali and how she made a decision to become a Christian. 
and I thought I'm going to share her editorial or her piece from the free press with you because it really says a lot about why I believe without some kind of faith, without a belief that there's a God, we are doomed. Not just we here in America, but everyone, everywhere. She was born a Muslim. Then she became an atheist. But she discovered that secular tools can't equip anyone for civilization war or civilizational war, which is the right term. So one of the biggest stories of last week didn't happen in Washington or Gaza or Tehran, but was an invisible change that happened inside the heart and mind of one woman, Ayan Hersi Ali. And this was printed on the Free Press, Barry Weiss's Substack column, which is one of the most brilliant pieces uh, on there these days, although I use many of the pieces. Ayan is many things. She's a refugee from Somalia, where she was the victim of female genital mutilation. She was a Dutch politician whose criticism of Islam, that's the religion she was raised in, led to death threats. Theo van Gogh, her collaborator on Submission, which was a film about Islam, was murdered in the streets of Amsterdam. And the killer left a note stabbed into his body, warning that Ion Hersey would be next. A normal person would have shut up, but Ion is not normal. She wrote a memoir, Infidel. She became a mother. She became an American. And she never, ever quieted her voice. It is for all those reasons and many more that Ion is really one of the great heroes of our time. She has also been, since the early 2000s, among the most prominent atheists in the world, or at least she was until late two weeks ago when she announced in the pages of Unheard that she had converted to Christianity. The Egyptian intellectual Hussein Abu Bakr Mansour wrote in reaction to the news that Ion Hersi Ali's announcement of embracing Christianity is one of the biggest pivotal moments culturally since 9-11. And I don't know how many people actually realize that. Ion Hersi Ali was the poster child of what the new atheists were all about, which is fascinating when you think about it, because I know many of us have family members who claim to be part of the new atheist movement. So in an increasingly secular West, are we doomed to lose the civilization war we find ourselves in? Can Christianity actually serve as a unifying force in that fight? And if religion won't unite us, what else might? So here is her essay that was uh, printed first in Unheard and then reprinted in the Free Press and which I'm now going to share with my listeners. She says, In 2002, I discovered a 1927 lecture by Bertrand Russell entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. It did not cross my mind as I read it that one day, nearly a century after he delivered it to the South London branch of the National Secular Society, that I would be compelled to write an essay with precisely the opposite title. 
The year before, I had publicly condemned the terrorist attacks of the 19 men who had hijacked passenger jets and crashed them into the Twin Towers in New York. They had done it in the name of my religion, Islam. I was a Muslim then, although not a practicing one. If I truly condemned their actions, then where did that leave me? The underlying principle that justified the attacks was religious after all. The idea of jihad or holy war against the infidels. Was it possible for me, as for many members of the Muslim community, simply to distance myself from the action and its horrific results? At the time, there were many eminent leaders in the West, politicians and scholars and journalists and other experts, who insisted that the terrorists were motivated by reasons other than the ones they and their leader, Osama bin Laden, had articulated so clearly. So Islam had an alibi. This excuse-making was not only condescending towards Muslims, it also gave many Westerners a chance to retreat into denial. Blaming the errors of U.S. foreign policy was easier than contemplating the possibility that we were confronted with a religious war. We have seen a similar tendency in the past few weeks, as millions of people sympathetic to the plight of Gazans seek to rationalize the October 7th terrorist attacks as a justified response to the policies of the Israeli government. When I read Russell's lecture, I found my cognitive dissonance easing. It was a relief to adopt an attitude of skepticism towards religious doctrine, discard my faith in God, and declare that no such entity existed. Best of all, I could reject the existence of hell and the danger of everlasting punishment. Russell's assertion that religion is based primarily on fear resonated with me. I had lived far too long in terror of all the gruesome punishments that awaited me. While I had abandoned all the rational reasons for believing in God, that irrational fear of hellfire still lingered. Russell's conclusion thus came as something of a relief. When I die, I shall rot. To understand why I became an atheist 20 years ago, you first need to understand the kind of Muslim I had been. I was a teenager when the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated my community in Nairobi, Kenya in 1985. I didn't think I had even understood religious practice before the coming of the Brotherhood. I had endured the rituals of ablutions, prayer, and fasting as tedious and pointless. The preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood changed this. They articulated a direction, the straight path, a purpose, to work toward admission into Allah's paradise after death, a method, the Prophet's instruction manual of do's and don'ts, the halal and the haram. As a detailed supplement to the Quran, the Hadith spelled out how to put into practice the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, God and the devil. The Brotherhood preachers left nothing to the imagination. They gave us a choice. Strive to live by the prophet's manual and reap the glorious rewards in the hereafter. On this earth, meanwhile, the greatest achievement possible was to die as a martyr for the sake of Allah. The alternative, indulging in the pleasures of the world, was to earn Allah's wrath and be condemned to an eternal life in hellfire. Some of the worldly pleasures they were decrying included reading novels, listening to music, 
dancing, and going to the cinema, all of which I was ashamed to admit that I adored. The most striking quality of the Muslim Brotherhood was their ability to transform me and my fellow teenagers from passive believers into activists almost overnight. We didn't just say things or pray for things, we did things. As girls, we donned the burqa and swore off Western fashion and makeup. The boys cultivated their facial hair to the greatest extent possible. They wore the white, dress-like thob worn in Arab countries or had their trousers shortened above their ankle bones. We operated in groups and volunteered our services in charity to the poor, the old, the disabled, and the weak. We urged fellow Muslims to pray and demanded that non-Muslims convert to Islam. During Islamic study sessions, we shared with the preacher in charge of the session our worries. For instance, what should we do about the friends we loved and felt loyal to, but who refused to accept our dawah, the invitation to faith? In response, we were reminded repeatedly about the clarity of the Prophet's instructions. We were told in no uncertain terms that we could not be loyal to Allah and Muhammad while also maintaining friendships and loyalty toward the unbelievers. If they explicitly rejected our summons to Islam, we were to hate and curse them. Here a special hatred was reserved for one subset of unbeliever, the Jew. We cursed the Jews multiple times a day and expressed horror, disgust, and anger at the litany of offenses he had allegedly committed. The Jew had betrayed our prophet. He had occupied the holy mosque in Jerusalem. He continued to spread corruption of the heart, mind, and soul. You can see why, to someone who had been through such a religious schooling, atheism seemed so appealing. Bertrand Russell offered a simple, zero-cost escape from an unbearable life of self-denial and harassment of other people. For him, there was no credible cause for the existence of God. Religion, Russell argued, was rooted in fear. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. As an atheist, I thought I would lose that fear. I also found an entirely new circle of friends, as different from the preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood as one could imagine. The more time I spent with them, people such as Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, the more confident I felt that I had made the right choice, for the atheists were clever. They were also a great deal of fun. So what changed? Why do I call myself a Christian now? Ion Hersey Ali goes on to say, part of the answer is global. Western civilization is under threat from three different but related forces. The resurgence of great power, authoritarianism, and expansionism in the forms of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's Russia. The rise of global Islamism, which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West, and the viral spread of woke ideology, which is eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. We endeavor to fend off these threats with modern secular tools, military, economic, diplomatic, and technological efforts to defeat, bribe, persuade, appease, or surveil. And yet with every round of conflict, we find ourselves losing ground. We are either running out of money with our national debt in the tens of trillions of dollars, or we are losing our lead in the technological race with China. But we can't fight off these formidable forces unless we can answer the question, what is it that unites us? 
the response that God is dead seems insufficient. So too does the attempt to find solace in the rules-based liberal international order. The only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. That legacy consists of an elaborate set of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life, freedom, and dignity from the nation-state and the rule of law to the institutions of science, health, and learning. As Tom Holland has shown in his marvelous book, Dominion, all sorts of apparently secular freedoms of the market, of conscience, and of the press find their roots in Christianity. And so I have come to realize that Russell and my atheist friends failed to see the wood for the trees. The wood is the civilization built on the Judeo-Christian tradition. It is the story of the West, warts and all. Russell's critique of these contradictions in Christian doctrine is serious, but it is also too narrow in scope. For instance, he gave his lecture in a room full of former or at least doubting Christians in a Christian country. Think about how unique that was nearly a century ago and how rare it is still in non-Western civilizations. Could a Muslim philosopher stand before any audience in a Muslim country then or now and deliver a lecture with the title, Why I Am Not a Muslim? In fact, a book with that title exists, written by an ex-Muslim, but the author published it in America under the pseudonym Ibn Warak. It would have been too dangerous to do otherwise. To me, this freedom of conscience and speech is perhaps the greatest benefit of Western civilization. It does not come naturally to man. It is the product of centuries of debate within Jewish and Christian communities. It was these debates that advanced science and reason, diminished cruelty, suppressed superstitions, and built institutions to order and protect life while guaranteeing freedom to as many people as possible. Unlike Islam, Christianity outgrew its dogmatic stage. It became increasingly clear that Christ's teaching implied not only a circumscribed role for religion as something separate from politics, it also implied compassion for the sinner and humility for the believer. Yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? Russell and other activist atheists believed that with the rejection of God, we would enter an age of reason and intelligent humanism. But the God hole, the void left by the retreat of the church, has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational, quasi-religious dogma. The result is a world where modern cults prey on the dislocated masses, offering them spurious reasons for being and action, mostly by engaging in virtue-signaling theater on behalf of a victimized minority or our supposedly doomed planet. The line often attributed to G.K. Chesterton has turned into a prophecy. 
When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. In this nihilistic vacuum, the challenge before us becomes civilizational. We can't withstand China, Russia, and Iran if we can't explain to our populations why it matters that we do. We can't fight woke ideology if we can't defend the civilization that it is determined to destroy. And we can't counter Islamism with purely secular tools. To win the hearts and minds of Muslims here in the West, we have to offer them something more than videos on TikTok. The lesson I learned from my years with the Muslim Brotherhood was the power of a unifying story embedded in the foundational texts of Islam to attract, engage, and mobilize the Muslim masses. Unless we offer something as meaningful, I fear the erosion of our civilization will continue. And fortunately, there is no need to look for some new age concoction of medication and mindfulness. Christianity has it all. And that is why... Ayan Hirsi Ali no longer considers herself a Muslim apostate, but a lapsed atheist. Of course, she still has a great deal to learn about Christianity, but she discovers a little more at church every Sunday. And she says, I have recognized in my own long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the challenges of existence that neither Islam or unbelief had to offer. What a brilliant essay by Ayan Hirsi Ali. It was another great piece by Martin Gurry about how the perverse policies and institutional rot have turned America upside down. So I read from his essay, on October 7th, Hamas, the Palestinian wing of the Muslim Brotherhood, slipped through the borders at Gaza and attacked Israel. The ensuing barbarities are now well known. Young women were raped, entire families were tortured and murdered, Infants were burned alive. Grandmothers were carried off as human trophies to Gaza. Yet it was the Israeli counterattack that seemed to offend the fine spirits at home and across the globe. Anti-Israel protests erupted across Europe and the United States, many of them blatantly anti-Semitic in tenor, involving threats and physical attacks on Jews. As if a curtain had been pulled back on a shameful scene, the horrors in Israel revealed the nihilism and moral perversity of the educated classes everywhere and the crack-up of institutions, from the university to our halls of power that once served to sustain the modern world. Vulnerable American institutions, already tottering, deeply distrusted by the public, gave every indication of having chosen this conflict as the moment to leap into the abyss. The news media in particular seemed intent on self-destruction. Response to the false Hamas claim that Israel had bombed a hospital causing 500 deaths was telling. The paragons of the news business, the New York Times, the BBC, and the agencies swallowed and regurgitated this narrative of civilian suffering uncritically. Western journalists weren't simply duped by Hamas. They became organs of Hamas propaganda, eager to believe Islamist gangsters with blood still fresh on their hands. Driven by sectarian fervor, they desperately needed to view the militants as victims and the Israelis for all their mutilated dead as oppressors. The New York Times accompanied its story with a photo of a bombed hospital that was not the one in question. That's how propaganda works. 
Universities outran the media in the race to institutional irrelevance. The identity virus was first incubated in academia, a moral atrophy that has reached pathological levels. Students in the most prestigious schools seized on the killing of Jews as a reason to rage against the eternal oppressor, the Jewish state. At Harvard, a letter supported by more than 30 student organizations held the Israeli regime responsible for all unfolding violence. GW University, students projected Hamas propaganda on the walls of campus buildings. One projection read, Glory to our martyrs. The Hamas paraglider graphic adorned more than one campus flyer. If the educated young have lost their bearing, we would do well to examine their education. The cult of victimhood is the monolithic faith of academia today. The instructor has become a quasi-religious commissar whose task is the revaluation of conventional values. The reaction of many university professors to the Hamas raid helped explain the derangement of their students. One felt exhilarated by the attack. Another called it awesome and a stunning victory. Some 1,400 sociologists, most of them employed in institutions of higher learning, signed a letter accusing Israel's apartheid regime of genocide. Such fatuous idiocies were uttered in the expectation of applause because our universities are run by herd animals endowed with a single talent, the ability to stampede away from loud noises. The president of Harvard needed four public statements before being prodded by criticism into getting the answer right. Meanwhile, American passivity on the world stage has yielded predictable consequences. As the U.S. has tiptoed away from crisis in post-invasion Iraq, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan, Crimea, North Korea, the Eastern Mediterranean, the South China Sea, tyrannical regimes hostile to our interests under the flag of disorder and misrule have inexorably advanced. Now a major war in the Middle East, implicating not just Hamas, but Iran and its proxies, has been added to the ongoing hostilities between Russia and Ukraine. On his return from a hastily arranged trip to Israel, President Biden, speaking from the Oval Office, sought to tag both conflicts with a grand theme that would justify the growing U.S. involvement on behalf of the Ukraine and Israel. Vladimir Putin and Hamas the president affirmed both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. And the U.S. in these conflicts was once again the arsenal of democracy, a World War II phrase that promoted Biden to the role of Franklin Roosevelt. The wars in Ukraine and Israel are indeed linked, but not in the way Biden suggested. Both are evidence of a world in the process of disintegration, the outcome of a generation of manic depressive U.S. foreign policies culminating in the disastrous doctrines of the Obama-Biden years. These doctrines maintain, in brief, that American aggression is the abiding source of global instability, and American retreat, magically, will lead humanity to a rules-based world order. The bloody flight from Afghanistan can stand as an example of what happens when these notions are put in action. And even as President Biden staked his claim as defender of global democracy, he was releasing $10 billion to Iran, continuing the administration's persistent attempt to cozy up to anti-American theocratic dictatorship that is the world's main sponsor of terrorism. 
Meanwhile, battle-scarred Donald Trump is a heavy favorite to become the Republican presidential candidate. This would pit a septuagenarian against an octogenarian in the 2024 contest. Imagine, it's enough to make one wonder whether the Zoomers have a point, but we should not yield to despair. Solid majority of Americans strongly support Israel and would like to see the ends of wars. So thank you for listening to this week's No Restraint podcast. Spread it around to your friends. And of course, there'll be a new one coming out next week. In the meantime, may you have a happy Thanksgiving. May God bless you. May God bless Israel. And may God bless the United States of America. See you next time. Get Joyce's Thought of the Day anytime. Subscribe to her podcast right now on the all-new 850 app and at 850wftl.com.